Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, in addition to tactical and strategic updates in the conflict, we look at the bombing of the Yavoriv military base, just miles from the Polish border, examine the implications of the Kremlin's alleged request for aid from China, and we look at the economic impact of the conflict 19 days in. Plus, we'll talk to the Telegraph's data team on the work they're doing to throw light on the war. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's day 19, and today I'm with the Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, assistant foreign editor, Katie O'Neill, and Louise Moon, the Telegraph's acting business features editor. Later, we speak to our data projects editor, Alex Clark. We talk every weekday, so there's an entire weekend to get through. What are the, what are the big updates, tactical and strategic, from the front lines? So the big thing over the weekend, Saturday morning, was the the strike on the base in the west of Ukraine, just near the Polish border, the Yavoriv training base, which is reported to have killed 35 people, that's what the Ukrainians say, and 180, that's what the Russians say. And this was a, this was a training base used by NATO members, the, the UN has used it in the past, and it's thought to be, Russia's claiming it was a site where foreign fighters were congregating for moving moving into Ukraine, and also thought to be one of the distribution points for the um, for the lethal aid, all the the anti anti tank uh, missiles and anti air missiles that have been flowing into into the country. We don't know. We, I don't know if we'll ever ever really know. But it's it was significant. It's the first major strike in that part of the country. It's being interpreted a number of ways. It was uh, it was possibly. Uh, Russia saying to the West, "We've got you. We've we've got uh, eyes on your shipments of of fighters and equipment. Uh, so stay out." It's possibly also Russia saying to Ukraine, "Don't accept all this stuff. Um, just 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 seal off the off the fight for what it is in the country." So we're not entirely sure. But but another way of looking at it is that uh, there's two things keeping Ukraine in the fight right now, and that is the remarkable and hugely impressive resilience of the fighters, civilian and military. And secondly, that flow of lethal aid. So Putin is doing all he can to undermine the first by bombarding cities in the east, Kharkiv and Chernihiv and uh, elsewhere, and down in the south, the siege of Mariupol, without food, water, electricity now for, for nearly a week. So trying to exact a toll on the civilian population 
to say to President Zelensky, you've got to sue for peace or, or you know, come to the table. And the second thing, of course, is the, as I say, the lethal aid and, and Putin by trying to open up this front to, to stymie that. He's just trying to isolate Ukraine and, and exact a toll on the, on the population to, uh, to bring the war to an end. Because the initial aims, as, we, as we've said repeatedly, this lightning strike to, um, to cut off the political and military leadership in Kyiv in the first 24 hours just, just fell flat on its face. So a couple of things going on there, which this strike to the West sort of signifies. And I think we should uh, keep an eye out for, for more of these things. I think there's probably a, a, an unseen battle going on right now on the ground in Western Ukraine and in the bordering countries, the NATO countries of uh, Poland, Hungary, Romania. I would have thought I would expect there to be all sorts of Russian clandestine activity around there looking for these resupply convoy routes handing over to teams inside Ukraine to see where they're going, what kind of numbers, where the distribution points are, et cetera, et cetera. So to counter that, again, I, I would suspect there's a, there's a largely, or you know, so far unreported, unseen, unseen war going on to try and track down these, these cells. Probably GRU, Russian military intelligence, civilian clothed uh, people going around looking for these, these routes. But that's just something I, I would expect to be happening. I haven't seen any evidence for that uh, yet. But but yeah, this, the strike on the on the Yavoriv training side on Saturday, these things don't just happen by accident. That missile wasn't wasn't well, the thirty reportedly thirty cruise missiles that hit that site. That doesn't happen by accident. Somebody targeted that place, and um, so there's there's someone on the ground suggesting that that's that's the that's the one to hit. Thanks, Dom. Um, on Sunday, we saw the death of the first foreign journalist killed uh, in the conflict. Um, Casey O'Neill, do you want to speak about this? Yeah, that was a really sinister development on Sunday. Brent Renaud, who was uh, a journalist for Time magazine, was killed in Erpen, just outside of Kiev. He was travelling with two other journalists, both of whom were also injured and taken to hospital. It was a really sinister development in that he was the first foreign journalist that has been killed while covering the war in Ukraine. Also, uh, worryingly, he it wasn't an accidental killing. He was shot dead by Russian forces as his car was uh, coming across a bridge in, in Erpen. Uh, initially, it was thought that he was reporting for the New York Times out there, but uh, it's, it's since emerged that he was on assignment for Time magazine. He was a revered journalist and uh, documentary maker. I imagine a, a very troubling and, and sad day in the Time newsroom yesterday. Definitely. We also seen reports that Russia this morning, Russia has asked for Chinese support. The Russians have denied this. Um, Dom and Katie, do you want to talk to us a little bit about what, what the story is there? Yeah, both sides currently, uh, both Beijing and Moscow, denying this report. But uh, it, it emerged last night that Russia is seeking help from Beijing, whether that be in the form of, of military assistance or other aid. More specifically, it's emerging today that it's drones that they have asked for from the Chinese. But uh, both sides currently uh, denying that that request has been made. Tom, I don't know if you want to come in on that. Yeah, so I, I think it's quite interesting if we look at this. So this was um, Jake Sullivan, the US National Security Advisor. He was interviewed by CNN um, about this. Uh, and so it's, it was um, CNN's interpretation that this is drones. And we, we think from what number 10 are saying here, uh, we think that's, that's pretty accurate. But Jake Sullivan was saying that they're watching closely any response from China and said, we, the US administration, we are communicating directly and privately to Beijing. There will absolutely be consequences for large-scale sanctions, uh, evasion efforts or support to Russia to backfill them, uh, backfill them in, in military kit. So, you know, interesting, interesting comments there from, from the US. Of course, 
look at it another way. I mean, the, the US uh, and the UK and many other NATO countries, many other Western countries are supplying weapons and other lethal and non-lethal aid and humanitarian support to Ukraine. So in and of itself, there's nothing sort of t- to say that China can't supply this stuff to Russia. But of course, Russia's request puts China in a really difficult position. Their sort of policy is to not interfere with it, with other countries, which is why they, they say UK or, or no one has a, has a voice as what happens in, in Hong Kong is an internal matter. So they say no, they don't want to get involved in other countries. So, so if, they were, if they were to support Putin, they are effectively backing his line that Ukraine does not exist. It's, it's just a part of Russia that needs to be returned at, at some point, but very definitely nailing their colours to the mast there. And equally, if they don't support him, then they are, by extension, accepting that Ukraine is a sovereign state and, and has a right to exist. So, so Russia here putting China in a very, very difficult position. And we've, we've mentioned before on this podcast how China ha- has a chance here to really step up for, for global leadership, to show what it, what it stands for and, and where it is on, on some of these issues. And so I think this is it's becoming plain that, that China is going to have to make a choice soon about whether or not it, it does back Putin or distance itself um, from him. And, and that'll, be, that'll be very interesting to see. So the Chinese embassy spokesman in Washington said they'd never heard, never heard of such a request, as Katie said, and then, and then sort of lockstep. Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman, denied the reports as well and saying that Russia had you know, enough stuff to fulfil their aims in, uh, in Ukraine. So really, really interesting messaging coming out of that. But I go back to the point that, that Jake Sullivan made, the national security advisor, when he said we're communicating directly and privately to Beijing. Privately, you'd, ex- you'd expect. I mean, that's how diplomacy works until it breaks out into the open and everyone tries to kill each other. But, you know, you expect diplomacy to happen in the background privately. But when he says we're communicating directly, and the fact that he told that to CNN, and we're now talking about it today, is just another example of how this war is extraordinarily being played out in the in the public guise. The amount of stuff we're seeing on social media, and now these kind of the high-level diplomatic activity that's that's being sort of trailed in advance to the global population, which suggests that that we, the global population, give belligerents the freedom to operate or, or not. And, and it's very interesting to see how we, we are being courted. We, the global population, are being courted by, by all sides because that then gives the, the freedom of action for the belligerents in the, in the theatre. Thanks, Tom. Katie O'Neill, uh, do you have anything to add to that? I think obviously the world is, is looking quite closely at uh, China now and, and what it's going to do. It only for the first time Beijing last week called this a war. Uh, up until then, it was sort of following um, Putin's line that it's a, a special military operation. So interesting. We already have seen since the invasion Beijing's line changing on this. Xi Jinping and and Putin are close allies. Just twenty days before the invasion, as uh, Xi Jinping and Putin met, so you know Putin has been very reluctant to to meet other world leaders. We see him at this big table, uh, even with his own diplomats having grown quite uh, paranoid about COVID during the pandemic. But the, the closeness that he shares with his Chinese counterpart is 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 very evident. So we have all eyes on China now to see how they will, will respond. Thanks. And Katie, I know you were you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, how the reaction in Russia is getting worse. I mean, there's an interesting story today in The Telegraph about um, anti-war protest houses being daubed with the, with the pro-invasion Z uh, symbol. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so this Z symbol is, it has become kind of a, a, an ominous rallying cry in Russia. Its uh, supporters of the war are, are pasting it everywhere. They're, they're wearing clothes with it uh, emblazoned on 
we saw at the, the the gymnastics recently a Russian athlete wearing it on his chest with pride. It's also being now used, it appears, to, to taunt those who oppose the war in Russia. A young activist yesterday awoke to find that his door had been dubbed with a giant Z symbol. He was organising protests against the war in St. Petersburg and elsewhere. Uh, so yeah, it's sort of being used now. This symbol that's that's being used to rally people in in Russia is also being used to taunt those who who oppose it. We're seeing clashes at at uh, protests in Russia, not violent clashes, more so just a, a huge clampdown on anyone who is being uh, explicitly anti-war. Very ominous um, video footage coming out over the weekend of of people as soon as they uh, unveil placards or banners that they have with anti-war messaging being completely uh, clamped down on and seized on by uh, forces that are policing those protests. Thank you, Katie. At this point, I'd love to invite uh, Louise Moon, the Telegraph's Acting Business Features Editor, to join the chat. Louise, you've been on this uh, podcast before talking about the economic impact of the conflict. We're now many, many days in. What's the economic fallout been in Russia and, and, and in the West? Last time we spoke, the stock market in Moscow was closed. That is still the case. Um, it's still closed to kind of protect itself from further disaster um, as Russia's economy has been, I mean, massively hit. It's, it's not looking good at all for them. Um, the main thing that everyone's watching really this week is warnings that Russia is on the brink of default So that's warnings from credit rating agencies. So this Wednesday is seen as the crunch moment because Russia has a deadline to repay $117 million worth of dollar-denominated debt. So essentially what that means is when a country can't or won't pay back those debts, um, which are bonds sold to foreign investors by Moscow, and then the foreign investors are then promised uh, repayments over a period of time. So when they can't repay that, that is them defaulting, which is essentially bankruptcy. If it doesn't repay that on Wednesday, it's then given a 30-day grace period before officially defaulting. And so if Moscow officially defaulted, that would be the first time it defaulted on its debt since a financial crisis in 1998. So Russia has said that it has enough money to repay that, but that it might have to repay it in rubles due to sanctions. This is because of Western sanctions on Russia have made moving money out of the country very difficult because they've ejected a number of Russian banks from the international payment system called SWIFT. So there's kind of still questions over, one, if it can pay, even though it says that it can, and two, if it's even allowed for them to be able to pay in rubles rather than in dollars. Um, And then the long-term implications of that is that it's more difficult for it to borrow in the future because obviously it has a bad reputation if it can't repay that on time. So there's, um, I mean, huge questions over over its economy and how that's going to impact its debt going forward. Otherwise, as of course everyone knows, there's been kind of a ramp up on sanctions from the UK side. So seven oligarchs were sanctioned last week, including Abramovich, who's obviously kind of the main one that's grasped the headlines. Um, On the tech side, obviously a lot of companies are still out. They pulled out a while ago. The biggest update really on that is that Instagram stopped working in Russia from Sunday. And then the key ongoing issue in more of an international light is obviously energy So I think the last time we spoke, the morning of EU and the US had banned oil and gas imports. Um, So now, so since then, really, now there's been ongoing discussion and kind of a scramble over how foreign countries are going to stem up their energy supplies because there's huge reliance on Russia. And basically, if it's possible to even do that at such a pace. And 
On top of that, the question of if that's going to impact net zero goals, because there's a lot of talk of um, if we might go back to more of a reliance on coal and other things that are kind of seen as dirty energy. And so it does that impact our goals of going more green. Um, so that's an ongoing discussion going forward, but it's obviously impacting not just Russia's economy, but Europe and, and the US as well. Thanks, Louise. That was incredibly comprehensive. Could we just focus a little bit on the aviation industry? We had a question from a listener about this. Um, so we heard that Bermuda's aviation regulator is suspending certification of all Russian-operated airplanes registered in the overseas te- uh, territory due to international sanctions. It's expected to affect more than 700 aircraft. Could we get into this? What, what's going on here? Why could it be so damaging? Yeah, so as you say, so they're suspending certification. So essentially, this boils down to manufacturers, because of sanctions, manufacturers aren't providing parts to Russian airlines. And so Bermuda's regulator said it can't confidently approve those planes as airworthy, because planes can't fly without certificates of airworthiness. So essentially, it's safety concerns. And as you say, there's about 1,000 planes in the Russian fleet and 745 are registered in Bermuda. So, I mean, if this does all, all fall into place and they can't fly, then then that's, um, I mean, a huge chunk of the Russian fleet that, that just can't fly anymore. So that will obviously hugely impact their aviation sector. This obviously comes in the kind of the wider context of there's mutual air closures between Europe and Moscow that have already kind of left Russian uh, aviation virtually isolated. So huge impacts for them, a bit of a tricky situation in terms of, in terms of their aviation Another thing in that sector is that EU sanctions mean that leasing firms have until March 28th, so two weeks, to free themselves from deals with Russian airlines, again, all to do with sanctions. That means also repossessing more than 400 jets worth $10 billion from Russian airlines. So not only are their own fleet potentially not being able to fly because of airworthiness, but also ones being leased to them could be taken away within two weeks as well. Thank you, Louise. Um, I think there's a couple more things to pick up on in terms of economic news. Uh, I know you wanted to talk a bit about defence spending. And of course, Dom and Katie, if you want to come in on this as well, that would be very interesting. Yeah, so um, it's a big question that's, that's circulating at the moment, and it, and it has been ongoing for, for quite a few days. Of There's been calls in the UK of a rise in defence spending. So some senior Tory MPs were calling for a 25% rise in defence spending. And this is basically pressure to follow countries like Germany, who've pledged to invest a one-off 100 billion euros this year to ramp up their spending on defence and military. So currently, the UK spends about 2% of our GDP on defence, which is roughly £45 billion. During the Cold War, obviously a while ago, but during the Cold War, that was 4%. So if we were to ramp up our spending back to those levels, that would mean roughly another £40 billion in spending in the UK. So that's all being spoken about and being reported quite widely. But the questions now were if if that will happen, firstly, and what that entails in terms of equipment. So what that 40 billion could buy and also what it is likely or would be wanted to focus on, for example, more manpower, which is obviously more conventional warfare or more on the tech side of things. So things like drones. And then another question on top of that, and I feel like this will be quite a key story going forward, is one, do those defence firms that build those, those that equipment, so people like BAE Systems, Airbus, um, Rolls-Royce, do they have the capacity to do this and the resources to do this? So I think that's something that will be quite interesting um, to watch, to see how, how the UK government reacts to, to pressure. And if it does 
done similar pledges to invest more, um, as I said, as as Germany and Poland have, have done similar as well. And then what that will be spent on. And then and then the companies that will benefit from that as well, the defence companies. I'll just add to that that the the issue of defence spending is going to throw into sharp focus whether or not last year's government uh, pan-departmental integrated review, this, this the, the foreign security, defence and development uh, strategy for the future, out of which fell the MOD's defence command paper. So they, they, sort of, they sort of docked into it at that point. Whether or not the assumptions in those in those papers are still valid. So that, that talked about a global role, much more sort of globally focused. It sort of chimed with the, the government's you know, line about global Britain, although we never... You know, it was aiming to put the flesh on the bones of what global Britain meant, because up to that point, no one, no one really knew... And so some of those some of those assumptions, even though Russia played played a, um, a a big part in the in the ongoing threats and the and the issues um, and the priorities, it wasn't number one. And neither was especially neither was hard power, as we've seen demonstrated for the last three weeks. So if there's any discussion about defence spending, it, it will really it will really throw into focus whether or not we we need another fun, a fundamental look at. Britain in the world now and for the next the next turn of the wheel and in defence terms each, each sort of you know, generation is kind of 20 or 30 years that's how long it takes to bring in some policy buy some new heavy metal bring it into service etc etc so whether or not the the shape of the army in particular is correct so right now the the, the navy is in quite a good space uh, quite good quite good shape the air force is okay got a lot of fighters could do with a bit more air transport and um, sort of airborne early warning and, and what have you, but but not too bad. But the army, because the army got snarled up for 20-odd years fighting counterinsurgency in Iraq and Afghanistan, it really is uh, in bad need of capital replacement. So it needs new tanks, new armoured fighting vehicles for the infantry, new artillery, new air defence, and so on and so forth. So each one of those is hugely expensive. And the question is, well, do you, do you try and fix one part of it or do a little bit of everything, bearing in mind, as I said, that it takes so long to bring this stuff into service that the, the world may have moved on by then. So the army's in, in, in a bit of a poor poor state at the moment and in bad need of, of money. But what do you do? What, where do you put that money? And who should benefit from it? And then the flip side of that is, as Louis said, defence sovereignty. If do you try and build all this stuff in the UK, jobs here, that's, you know, that's, that's great. But is there the capacity? And also, if, when you talk bang for your buck... If for any given amount of money, if you could afford three widgets that are built in Britain or six widgets that are built elsewhere, what do you want to do? The military will say, well, let's buy the six widgets because there's more of them. And then you get the constituency politics that pile in and say, no, 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 it's jobs in that in that arms manufacturer in my constituency and so on and so forth. So politics, domestic politics really plays into this whole idea of defence sovereignty. So both those ideas together will be thrown up with this ongoing discussion about should the uh, should the military get an uplift in budget? Thanks very much, Dom. Uh, Casey, I don't know if you want to add to that at all before we move on. Yeah, there is a lot of political momentum around the idea of of defence spending at the moment. Writing in The Telegraph last week, Jeremy Hunt, the former foreign secretary, uh, was calling for defence spending in Britain to rise to the levels that uh, the US commits to defence spending. So currently, 2.3% of British GDP is spent on defence, according to NATO figures, and that compares with 3.5% by the US. Liz Truss also last week admitting that we haven't spent uh, enough money on, on defence in recent decades. Sir Keir Starmer was arguing that uh, recent cuts to troop numbers need to be reversed. So uh, it, it's definitely a big political issue at the moment, although at a time when um, when people are facing a cost of living crisis, it will be a, a tough sell politically to up our defence spending. 
Thanks very much, Casey. Um, just looking forward to the rest of the week from all of you. I mean, what, what should we be looking out, looking out for? Well, I think from the ground, we should keep an eye on, on Kyiv. So uh, the, the stalled Russian advance seems to have got going over the last few days. It's broken up into smaller packets and is trying to encircle Kyiv. The, they're in the north. They're trying to come down the east and the west. Once they've encircled the city, then they, they've got a number of options. Uh, I can either go in or just pummel it or, or, or sort of try and starve it out. But you need to encircle it first of all. So after taking a very bloody nose in the first uh, first few days and then stalling for, for 10 days or so, if Russia can encircle Kiev, it will lead to more, it will give it more strategic options. And they've had enough time now to to realise that they, the first plan failed, resupply and restock their their kit uh, with you know, fuel ammunition and get fresh troops in there. So if they do not succeed in the next few days in making significant gains around Kiev, then I think the Russian military will be in, in real trouble. And all these questions that we've been asking about, where is this mighty Russian army that we've heard so much about? I mean, they will come right back. Again, not necessarily a good thing because they might just retreat into using heavy artillery and missiles to bombard cities. Um, but I think there's big questions being asked about the Russian military now. Um, and they've had a chance to, to reorganise and reevaluate and come up with a new plan. And if that doesn't happen over the next few days, then, yeah, Ukraine will be in a, in a much stronger position. I'll go next. <laughs> um, I think, well, we've spoken a lot about energy and also defence spending. Um, those will continue to be key topics. Another one that I think is worth keeping an eye on is... There's a lot of warnings at the moment about a global food crisis as a result of this. Obviously, I mean, this is less Russia or Ukraine domestically, economically focused, but it's something that will obviously have massive implications globally. Um, Russia and Ukraine are some of the world's biggest agricultural producers. Ukraine's known as the breadbasket of Europe. Um, they're huge producers and exporters, some of the world's largest of wheat, um, of maize, of sunflower seed. And Russia also has enormous amounts of key ingredients that are used in fertilisers. So the expectation is, and this has already started to happen, but the expectation is this will fuel further fuel food inflation, um, which is already at a seven-year high as of January, so prior to the war. It's already coming under pressures. So I think that will be something that will be being looked into a lot more, something that we'll see over here, you know, everyday, everyday food prices um, are likely to go up even further. Um, and then how that develops as the war continues as well. Depends also on how long how long this whole the whole situation, the whole war goes on. Yeah, we'll be keeping a close eye this week on how world leaders are reacting to any further escalation of uh, Putin's war. Uh, the attack that we saw yesterday in Lavrov was the most westerly attack that we've had in the war so far, just 15 miles from the border with Poland. Both the US saying, uh, the US and, and Britain saying yesterday and today that any sort of, uh, you know, movement into NATO territory will be considered an act of war. Of course, Jake Sullivan, uh, the White House security advisor, saying yesterday that even if any weapons or, or, or missiles land in NATO territory, whether that be accidental or intentional, that will be viewed as an act of war. We had Sajid Javid today saying that the, the first uh, Russian toe cap to cross into NATO territory will be considered um, an act of war. So, you know, it's Putin is is growing, uh, you know, increasingly desperate. He hasn't, the war hasn't gone the way that he would have uh, would have hoped in an, in an ideal situation. So um, as he increases his activity, the, the West is keeping a close eye. Thanks very much, Casey. Now, it's uh, an honour to be joined by our data projects editor, Alex Clark. 
who is monitoring and analysing open source intelligence, exploring how we can track the war in real time. And of course, uh, for, for Katie, uh, Dom and Louise, if you've got questions for Alex, please please jump into this as well. Um, so Alex, would you like to tell us a little bit about what you and your team are doing? And for those of people who don't know, what is open source data? Yeah, hi, everyone. Um, I mean, yeah, that's exactly the challenge we tried to answer, whether we could map the war in real time, kind of drawing on basically the huge open source intelligence community, which has kind of sprung out of the Ukrainian conflict. For those who don't know, open source intelligence, I mean, kind of in the past, intelligence gathering was something that kind of, you know, governments had to do, and it was very expensive and time consuming. And in the social media age, where everything's published online, and there are all these extra tools that you can draw on, it's become much more freely accessible. And we're essentially kind of drawing on these communities that sprung up that kind of um, have set about trying to kind of, you know, identify where a particular piece of conflict might have taken place or kind of what kind of weaponry has been using. I mean, it's something which has kind of been part of the Ukrainian invasion since day one. The buildup of troops around Ukraine's borders, I mean, that was visible in satellite imagery, which is available online. And likewise, some people were able to even spot the movement of Russia into Ukraine on kind of Google Maps data. So all quite mad stuff. Uh, and we've kind of set about picking kind of the what we see as the most credible kind of um, organizations and, uh, and, and researchers within the open source uh, community and kind of tracking kind of what they're spotting with each day. And, uh, and in turn, mapping it ourselves. Can you give us a sense of what these maps actually show you? And how do they help us? How do they help us understand the conflict? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I mean, I was quite actually surprised by how effective our maps kind of uh, square with, I mean, some some more kind of traditional sources. Essentially, we've kind of seen all the the main movements of the Ukrainian invasion in our map. I mean, if you uh, we've built a tool where you can kind of go back in time and see how the maps played out um, since Invasion Day and. Immediately on the first day, for instance, we could see uh, the Russian takeover of Chernobyl kind of on, on, on the way to Kyiv. And since then, we've seen Kyiv itself as a, as a main hotspot of um, military chatter. That includes kind of the surrounding smaller settlements like Irpin and, and I think Hostomol as well. Likewise, eastern separatist regions have been hotbeds of um, military activity. And we've also seen uh, the major cities of Kharkiv and Sumy. They've just been kind of the, their, their sieges have essentially been represented uh, on our map. In recent days as well, obviously, we, we heard earlier about the attacks towards the west of Ukraine, especially close to the Polish border. And our maps uh, managed to detect those as well. So, I mean, it's obviously a kind of uh, experimental map, but it's definitely squaring with um, on-the-ground reports as well. Thanks, Alex. So what, what can't you track? What's, what's, what's more difficult for your team? I think the difficulty we have is, to some extent, we don't want to put our eggs in too much in one basket. So rather than kind of relying on just one or two open source researchers. We're mining things in aggregate, uh, and that means kind of doing things on an automatic basis. So we can't get too precise with the, the, the locations we're mapping. So if, for instance, if there's a report of a bombed out Russian tank near Kharkiv, the kind of way we're mapping that is literally just kind of flagging that Kharkiv itself. We're not kind of providing precise latitude, longitudes of where conflict is at the moment. The additional thing we, we, we have to grapple with is that we're obviously kind of constrained by when these things are being reported rather than necessarily when the events took place. So we kind of hope the way we've kind of gathering our data, we're aiming for kind of the latest reports. But nonetheless, there is a potential for our map to be somewhat lagged by what's immediately happening on the ground. Just to bring us up to date, Alex, what has the data showed us so far uh, this morning? Where, where are we up to? Well, right now, we can still see kind of echoes of the attacks on the west of Ukraine at the weekend. Right now, kind of one of the most like 
the flashing hotspots on our map is um, around Kyiv and kind of the surrounding area as the Russians attempt to encircle the city. We're also continuing to see flashpoints around the south of Ukraine, around the city, well, on the path to Odessa, which is one of those kind of key port cities that uh, the, the Russia has been aiming for. And we're seeing kind of uh, definitely some activity down there. And just finally, in, in recent episodes of, of this podcast, we, we've spoken about the perils of misinformation. How is that? How has this impacted your analysis? We have to emphasize with this map, it is very experimental. And to some extent, we're kind of relying on our own, the sources that we're looking at's credibility. And what we've aimed to do is look for the most kind of professionalized um, open source researchers that we can find. I mean, back when open source investigation was first a thing in kind of the Syrian civil war, for instance, and kind of pioneered by Bellingcat, it's kind of the realm of hobbyists almost. It was kind of people definitely not in the country that the conflict was happening in and just using their copious knowledge to identify whether it was specific types of weaponry or, 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 or guns and, and that kind of thing. But now we've seen a much more kind of professionalised open source community. There's, for instance, the Centre for Information Resilience, which I highly recommend, which is kind of like a think tank, which uh, kind of pioneers these kind of open source techniques. And, and I think kind of making sure that we've picked professional open source researchers has been uh, one of our strategies. The other is, of course, we're making sure to only flag areas if we've had a sufficient number of reports, because we want to make sure that kind of uh, what we're seeing is corroborated as much as possible, basically. I guess, Alex, my final question quickly would be, uh, to what extent does this map reflect what's happened? And to what extent can you, could, could you use it to, to, to sort of predict what's going to happen? Yeah, I think um, when the invasion first unfolded, I think it was the Institute for the Study of War was... Um, one of those international think tanks, which was putting out maps of um, Russian territory occupied in Ukraine and how it was uh, progressing as the invasion unfolded. And I think the remarkable thing about our map is you can kind of see that that kind of uh, movement um, inwards into the country through these reports. And I think it's also interesting to kind of compare these kind of you know, mappings of uh, Russian territory in Ukraine now and alongside that, the next stage of conflict and often seeing, for instance, there was that recent attack on that power plant in Ukraine. I can't can't pronounce that. And I remember uh, as that appeared in the map, it was quite remarkable to see that compared to where we thought the kind of um, border of Russian activity was at that moment. So I think um, I think it's uh, standing up fairly well, actually, compared to what we do now. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Alex, for joining us. Well, we've covered an awful lot. I think now's just the time to say, what, what, are, your, what are your final thoughts? Uh, keep an eye on Kiev and, um, and look out for any more of these Russian attempts to interdict I destroy the supply lines coming over from from Western countries. Is mine on the back of that? Um, in terms of supply, I would say the same, um, and how that affects our food and our energy. Uh, and just in terms of of rhetoric from the West, obviously uh, a close eye is being kept uh, from Western leaders on Russia and any sort of escalation and ac- action there. So I mean, we're, we're sort of in the territory of of running out of of sanctions and and further action that we can take. But um, Western leaders keeping a close eye. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to the Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you found this show helpful, follow Ukraine The Latest on your podcast app. And if there's something we could do to make it even more useful, please do let us know. You can email podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. 
Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Sophie Coe. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>